How has being a foster parent changed you? This is Detroit Catholic journalist Dan Malloy interviewing foster parents Tom and Anne Marie Mayless. Um, it's shown me patience <laughs> to be more patient, not only with with the foster child, but with my own children. Tom and Anne Marie are parishioners of St. John Fisher Chapel in Auburn Hills and have been foster parenting for six years. It, it's definitely changed our perception of um, of foster care and yeah. um, how what kids are like in, in foster right. care. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we've been very blessed. When I when I look at them, you know, I can see the face of the Lord. So, you know, it's, I'm doing this for him. Whenever it gets hard, I always think, okay, he's, he's, he's been patient with me. The Lord has been patient with me. I have to be patient with them. That's what the Lord would want. He's, and that's what I always think of. Whenever I want to throw in the towel, that's what I think about. And it's gotten me through. I mean, it's because it's not easy, you know. We met somebody else that, that was fostering, and uh, he was joking with us. He was, yeah, just when you think you're done, the Lord's like, yeah, you're not done. <laughs> so it's like, fam- I can't leave. Okay, we'll take a break. And they're like, Lord's like, he's a practical joker, right? right, like, right. You think you're in charge? No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Today on Detroit Stories, an honest discussion about foster parenting and the practical joker really in charge. Welcome to Detroit Stories, a podcast on a mission to boldly share the stories of the people and communities in Southeast Michigan. These are the stories that fascinate and inspire us. Being a mom is the most challenging and rewarding job in the world. At Catholic Charities of Southeast Michigan, they make it a bit easier for moms who are feeling alone, struggling financially, or who need an extra hand to help them establish a secure and happy family. To learn more about the ways you can help moms in need, visit ccsem.org slash respect life. Part one, the Mayless family. If you ask Tom and Anne-Marie Mayless how the whole foster parenting thing happened, they'll tell you God started pestering them around 15 years ago. It's a kind of a long story, but uh, try to boil it down. So I'm kind of, I went came back to my faith probably about what 15 years ago, something like that, maybe a little longer. Um, and so I just, you know, through prayer and, and so on, I've been just having this tug at my heart, like for some reason that I, to do fostering. I mean, I don't know where it came from. It was just really strange. And I, um, so I've had, I had a couple of things happen to me where I, uh, I, I'm a medical device rep and I am in hospitals and in operating rooms. And um, usually the same people work the same rooms and cases. And so I was doing a case uh, downtown and, and uh, I, I always talked to all the nursing staff and there was a woman that I didn't recognize. And I introduced myself to her and we started talking and she turns out that she uh, was a foster parent. And I was like, wow, you know, this was kind of a godsend because I've been thinking, you know, about it. And um, so I had a lot of questions for her and uh, she was great. She actually gave me her number and I never saw her again after that, which was really interesting. Um, And then I think it was about a month later, I was going to have some dental work done and I uh, just happened to... um, look at like an Oakland press or whatever it was that was sitting there and, and right on the front page or, or maybe it was inside and the, below the fold, it had a, something about foster uh, fostering. And I said, okay, I'm the Lord is trying to, you know, 
tell me uh, that he wants me to do this. And I think the, the way that you know that the Lord wants you to do something, it's like, I don't want to do this, <laughs> you know? And, uh, but I, I'm really trying to be faithful and be like, okay, if the Lord is asking me to do this, he would ask me to do something, A, I don't want to do, but something that is good. Meanwhile, Anne-Marie. You know, I kept hearing the Bethany advertisements on the radio, you know, about foster care. And then, um, you know, I was kind of thinking about, we had just moved into this home and we had, uh, we have what everybody has a guest bedroom. We had a guest bedroom. I'm like, oh, it just feels like there's an empty room. We have something we can offer. But I'm like, there's no way Tom is going to go for this. <laughs> like, there's no way. And so we actually, I remember where we were, we just sat down and I was like, so what would you think about considering fostering? And he was, he just looked at me and I was like, okay, so that didn't go over very well. <laughs> and he's like, no, I've had and he, exactly what he was just talking about. Like all these. So yeah. it was definitely like the Lord was working in two different directions. But they knew they couldn't make this decision alone. Anne-Marie and Tom already had two children of their own, a 10 and eight year old at the time. And they wanted them to be a part of the discussion. <laughs> so uh, we had a family meeting about it and we talked a little bit about it. My daughter loves kids and yep. little ones. And um, and our son was a little apprehensive about it. Um, he just, you know, well, what's this, what does this mean? What does this go? How long are they staying? That's always a question, right? <laughs> yeah, Great staying? question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you don't you know. You never know. You never know. You never yeah. know. Our, you know, the kids were aware. We, we made them part of the decision-making process. You know, you also have to, you know, because, yep. the, right, they're sharing their parents. So it was decided. The Maylesses were going to be a foster family. So I think the, the woman that you did spoke, speak to, her, she said the first step, if you're interested in, is the very first step is that you should just um, reach out to one of the organizations and mm -hmm. find out, just ask for more information. And so I contacted Catholic Charities, just being devout Catholics. That's, you know, we reached out and um, got some information and they said, well, we're holding a, a, a class this week. They had sent out some paperwork and said we're having a class. And they drove to Monroe to take an orientation class with other potential foster parents. From there, Anne-Marie and Tom went through what seemed like an interminable licensing process. And then they were paired with a caseworker who would help pair them with foster children. For a system that tends to be characterized more by its setbacks than by its strengths, the Maylesses were pleasantly surprised with their experience. The one thing that I think we learned as well about fostering, you used to ask preconceived notions, right? Everybody hears, oh, the foster care system is broken. Um, you know, there's all these problems. Um, and, you know, it's... It's not perfect, but it's not broken either. I mean, I, you know, whenever you're dealing with people, I think it's going to be imperfect. Uh, obviously, it's underfunded. Um, you know, our, our caseworker, she, she's terrific, actually. She's yeah, like the best caseworker we've ever had. Um, if every caseworker was like her, she, I think the foster care system would be far and away just so much better. And finally, months after starting the process, Tom and Anne-Marie welcomed their first foster children into their home a three-week-old baby boy, and his two-year-old sister. So um, uh, our daughter was just all, all about that. I mean, Babies. she just loved it. I mean, she, we had we have pictures of her holding the, the baby yeah. and and uh, playing. Remember, how yeah. she would play with them. We called it Josie's Holding Camp, you know. So uh, <laughs> she was great. I she mean, loved she, being a big sister. Yeah, you know. she really loved it, so. and it was great. And then, uh, and then we got two more after yeah. that. All right. And uh, they were brother and sister as well. So we started um, out asking um, for siblings. We yeah. wanted because it is hard to find foster homes that will take more than one. Yeah. Um, and you know, so a lot of times siblings get broken apart between yeah. foster homes, and right. so we wanted to make sure that um, 
you know, if we could, we had two beds, so we could keep them together. And you could see why. Yeah, you know, they come you in can. and it's like they need each other. Right. Um, they're scared, you know. Since then, the Malises have fostered five children, including the little boy they are fostering now. And for them, surviving the process has been all about adjusting to their new normal. Oh, chaos. <laughs> <laughs> chaos. Yeah. You're, I mean, so both of us work full time. Um, we both have very demanding jobs. Um, I travel on occasion. He travels all over the state. So it's a balancing act. I mean, you know, the the children that you take in for foster care, they're entitled to to parent visits or sibling visits, or um, a lot of times they have therapy appointments. So you have to be able to try and manage that. Um, we've been very blessed that our employers um, afford us a lot of opportunities to be able to, to manage those things. There is chaos. I mean, I remember when we got the first two, we had a three-week-old baby and, uh, and, a, and a little girl. And uh, <laughs> I'd forgotten what it was like to get up in the middle of the night for feedings and, and changing of diapers and things like that. But uh, it, was, it was great. You know, I mean, it was still good. Um, fulfilling. It was fulfilling, yeah. One of the agreements Tom and Anne-Marie made with their caseworker was about being placed with children whose parents were comfortable with them freely practicing their faith. And for them, passing on their faith has been one of the most rewarding parts of foster parenting. Well, we, uh, we, we take them to Mass with us every Sunday. Um, so that's first off right there. But we, you know, we pray with them uh, when we do the rosary together. They, if they're, if, uh, you know, sometimes we do it in the evening when, when he, they're in bed. Uh, sometimes not, but uh, that's part of it. Uh, we we pray at meals uh, when we all eat as a family together, and then just talking about the faith and and what you know the icons around our house mean and and things of that nature. They we talk about Mary and we talk about how Mary's always you know protecting of you and looking out for mm-hmm. you. Uh, and uh, I think uh, especially the, the the little one that we have now, I think he recognizes that. Um, We've caught him talking to his uh, statue of the Blessed Mother in his room. Before, yeah. So, it's, you know, that that's when it's like, okay, we've kind of passed on. The- but I mean, not only that, but there was a reading earlier this week just talking about, you know, if you accept the child in my name, you're accepting me. Uh, you know, there there are, trust me, there, are, there have been times where things have been rough. And maybe, you know, I've, I've said maybe because I, as a, being a salesperson, I deal with adversity and, and so forth uh, uh, all the time. So perseverance is, uh, I think, you know, an attribute that you, you need to have because it, it does get challenging at times. And uh, you just have to kind of put your head down and, and just kind of keep going. You and, offer it up. And, yeah, you just offer it up. Yeah. And it's, um, but that's what I always, I always think about is, you know, we're trying to instill the faith. You know, it's not our job to convert anyone or whatever, but plant the seeds and let the Holy Spirit do, do the watering. And we're hoping, even with the, the little little guy, that after, you know, whenever he leaves us, that he at least will remember these things, uh, you know, as He'll, he gets older. You know, call on the Lord. Yeah. You know, right, even when you're scared or you're alone or, you know. Right. Because we don't know where they're going to be. We can't right. promise anything. There's right. nothing we can promise for their future, right? It's this that they hold on to when they have to go through their inevitable goodbyes with their foster children. The hope that they planted a seed for a relationship with God. And while they experience heartbreak at each goodbye, it is eclipsed by the reality that they are assisting parents who have fallen on difficult times and hopefully mending a fractured family. I think, you know, you have to be at least keep that in mind that, you know, um, 
that's the whole goal of foster care is, is reunification. So, you know, if someone's trying to, to do this just to because they want to adopt, I mean, there are opportunities for that, uh, of course, but if that's your main goal, sometimes it, you don't want to get your heart broken either because the, the kids would go back to the birth parents. And God provides us as much love as we're willing to pour out. And these uh, these little guys, they, they need us, but then yeah. we want to see them get back because their best chance of success in life is to be with their birth parents or their birth family. People know who they are. Mm-hmm. And so we want to support those folks as much as we can. When their foster children leave their home, Tom and Anne-Marie don't get contact with them again. So we're not allowed. That's part of the, um, we've asked and they'll be like, oh, they're doing fine, but they're not really allowed to disclose much of anything of what's good. So you do kind of, that's the heartbreaking part is that, you know, some of them, I think if they're adopted out, it's up to the parents if they want to to reach out or, and they can, I mean, they can certainly find us, but unfortunately, like once they leave our care, we don't really hear anything more. I mean, we've inquired before, but you know, we're not really allowed to tell you anything, you know. Okay, yeah, so you hope for the best. We continue to pray for them. We have two two of them are on our fridge that are no longer with us, and then we had, um, and actually there's another one over there somewhere. Keep their, their pictures up yeah. so that we pray for them constantly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, once they leave us, we don't really know yeah. much. It's an incredibly humbling position, one where they know very little about the fruits of their labor. All they can do is hope and pray. Part two, behind the scenes of foster care. The foster care system has a lot of moving parts. For it to work, it demands the intense collaboration of many compassionate and extremely dedicated people working to ensure the success of the children they're seeking to help. The foster families, birth parents, and children all have multiple people who work with them and help them, and everyone in the process is fighting for the same end, reunification. The complex process starts with one simple step. Honestly, to get into becoming fostering, you just need to call, um, say you're interested in fostering. This is Christy Hardin, the Director of Child Welfare for Catholic Charities of Southeast Michigan, a department that encompasses foster care, adoption licensing, and independent living. What then kind of happens uh, is that it's then passed on to our licensing supervisor who kind of does an initial uh, phone call conversation, um, then talks uh, talks to their staff, or we send out a welcome packet, just kind of giving information regarding the licensing process. Um, once a family is more committed to, they've kind of contacted back and said, yeah, we're, we're willing to do this process. They're then assigned a licensing worker. They will go out and meet and have like an initial walkthrough of the home to look at the home, meet the family, kind of let them know all of the documents that are going to be needed for the licensing process and kind of go from there, provide an application, uh, fingerprint documentation, and then just it's really documentation gathering from their finances, medicals, um, social history, um, and kind of interviews from there. CCSEM currently has 26 licensed foster families and are working on licensing six to eight more families. They typically house around 50 children each year. Children are brought into the foster care system after Child Protective Services receives and investigates a complaint regarding a child's home situation and finds a preponderance of evidence. CPS then petitions the court to have the child removed from their parents' care. When that is ordered by a judge, the child comes into the child placing agency and is then placed in a foster home or with relatives depending on the severity of the allegations. 
CCSEM has the system down to a science. They have placed children within an hour when there is an immediate need. It just takes coordination and a streamlined process from getting the proper paperwork from the intake worker to the agency to the foster parent. Getting a child with a foster family is not CCSEM's objective, however. The, the first goal in foster care is reunification. Reunification is something that we strive for here. Um, we want the child and the parents to succeed. Our primary goal is always reunification. This is Christy and two other CCSEM employees. The first permanency plan is reunification to have a parent work a treatment plan. Um, Really, that treatment plan is specific to that family and the needs of that family as to the reason why the children came into care. We then kind of work with service providers to provide services for those parents. Um, and then we kind of work, well, we work with the parents and, and the service providers, and then we kind of act as a liaison between the parents and the court system to report progress or lack thereof of progress for that parent's treatment plan. Um, and then we offer parenting time. So we have a, a room here in which we uh, monitor one-on-one -on -one or face-to-face -face parenting uh, times with parents and their children and observe their parenting interactions um, and report those um, findings, views, interviews, whatever, you know, uh, to, to the court. This is where Lida McRoberts comes in, one of the foster care case managers at CCSEM. So essentially what a case manager does is we work with both the birth parents and the children. We also work with whoever it is that the child's staying with. This includes going to court, writing reports, um, verifying that the child is doing well in their placement, checking in to make sure that they have no developmental disabilities, or medical concerns. If they do, we refer them for services. When we work with the birth parents, we refer them for services. A lot of birth parents will have court-ordered uh, treatment plans, and these treatment plans are different for each parent depending on why their children were brought into care. A lot of them include therapy, substance abuse help. Sometimes it's domestic violence related. So we refer them to any services that they're going to need to be successful in the future. Lida is currently managing 10 cases. She speaks with the birth parents nearly every single day and checks in with the foster parents about once a week or more, depending on the child's needs. So when we go into a licensed foster home or relative caregivers, we first thing we look at is the child. Are they dressed appropriately? Do they look clean, like they've had a bath? Are there any noticeable marks and bruises. If there are, we ask about it. And for the most part, the relative caregivers will say, oh, you know, he was learning how to walk and fell and bumped his head on the corner right here. And then we'll do a little safety plan saying something. Okay, how can we prevent this from happening again? Oh, maybe I'll get the uh, table squishy covers so that if he falls again, he won't hurt his head, stuff like that. We always look at the child's bedroom if the child is under the age of two years old, we look at safe sleep. So no pillow and no blanket until the age of two, and that's to prevent SIDS. Um, so that is very important. If kids are able to talk to us, we'll see them alone in their bedroom and just kind of bond with them, ask them how it's going. Because if the children are older, they're aware they're in foster care. And it's not always easy for those kids. So it's always important to check in with them and see how they're doing. And sometimes they'll tell you, you know, I want to go to therapy. We might not think they need it, but if they're telling us that, we're absolutely going to refer them. Um, we also, our policy is that no 
corporal or physical punishment is allowed. So we discuss that with both the foster parents, relative caregivers, and the children. When we're in their red room with them, we ask them, you know, what happens when you get in trouble? And for the most part, they'll let us know. They'll say, oh, when I'm in trouble, uh, I can't watch TV. Or when I'm in trouble, I have to sit in time out, stuff like that. Lida supervises a wide array of cases. Some of the birth parents she monitors are allowed to have unsupervised visits with their children out in the community because they're doing very well in their treatment plan and they are able to plan those with the child's foster parents. Some of her other cases, the birth parents' visits are required to be at the CCSEM agency in a parenting time room. And during those parenting times, I look for, does this parent come prepared? Do they have items for their children? So if they have a baby, are they bringing diapers? Are they bringing bottles, wipes? We have a ton of toys in there, but we also look for, is the parent going to maybe bring something special for their kid to play with, to interact with, and keep their attention? Um, a lot of times our biggest thing is we, we want the parent to interact with their child. We don't want them to just throw on a YouTube video and sit there with their kid. We want them to bond. We want to see actual parenting happening during this time. Because if children are to go home, there's a lot more to parenting than sitting your kid in front of a TV. Um, we also look to see if the parents are meeting the children's needs, if they're crying and they're hungry, if the parents going to give them food, if they need a diaper change, if the parents going to change their diaper, if they need to be taken to the bathroom, is the parent going to advocate to take them to the bathroom? Because we don't have a bathroom in that room. Um, and then we also just look at general appropriateness. Is the, does the parent know what to do with the child? Does the parent know how to appropriately redirect inappropriate behavior? It's all things we assess. It's awkward for the parents and Lida. I think the biggest thing is building rapport with your clients, sitting down with them and having conversations and setting expectations about what you want to see during those parenting times. For example, I have um, a client who has two children and it's difficult for her to juggle those two children based on the age ranges. So I sat down with her and I said, listen, I know sometimes your kids aren't going to listen to you and that's okay. However, the most important thing is that you're meeting their needs and that they're safe. So what can we do to redirect behavior to make sure this child is safe? He's going to tell you no. He's going to get upset. That's okay. But we need to ensure his safety. And when you sit down and you have these real conversations with parents on a human level, they're more likely to be more real in front of you and more authentic. And what I found is sometimes a kid will be running around the room and they'll fall down and the parent will immediately look at me and be like, he's okay. Like, I'm aware, you know, kids fall. So I definitely think that they feel uncomfortable. When I first started doing it, I felt uncomfortable as well. But I think if you're just real with them and you sit down, it can eliminate a lot of the uncomfortableness. But then again, we also have to evaluate, is this parent doing this for the time being? And do we think they could do this long term? She sees a lot of very difficult things in her job and experiences secondhand trauma on the regular. But there's one thing that still makes this her dream job. It's the relationships with the children. I have some kids, I have a lot of kiddos who can't talk yet. And then I have some kids who do and watching them grow throughout the time in care is amazing. Watching them learn how to walk or once they have a service that they really needed and it's implemented, just to watch the transformation is amazing. Um, I have some kids in their teen years who I've been able to bond with recently and that has been awesome, just learning about them and what they like to do. And I've learned a lot about anime recently. I knew nothing, um, 
but I had a kid talk to me for about an hour about anime, and now I've got a list of shows I have to go watch on Netflix, my favorite part of the job. You're seeing the improvement oh, in their lives. That, absolutely. Like, you know, we're in a hard spot. You know, we don't want children to have to come into foster care, but once they're here, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that they have the services they need. Unfortunately, the goal of reunification is rarely met. Out of nearly 50 foster care children, there were only a couple reunifications in each of the last two years. It can make the work seem bleak and exhausting, and sometimes, on really dark days, hopeless. But Lida and the rest of her team know that when it comes to the kids' best interest, they aren't working alone. And this is in part thanks to Ross Henson and his dogged pursuit of finding and training the right families to accept foster children into their homes. Ross is the licensing and intake specialist at CCSEM. Once an inquiring foster family is interested in the process, he's the guy to take it from there. I would go to the home and conduct an orientation visit, which gives the uh, prospective foster parent, all the paperwork as far as licensing is concerned, um, applications, criminal backgrounds, um, a walkthrough of the home, which um, I have to measure bedrooms, detail on paper what is in the bedrooms as far as bed sizes, closets, um, windows uh, to escape in case God forbid there's a fire or anything. Um, just make sure the home is up to par as far as living standards are concerned. We just want to make sure the child is safe. Obviously, that's our number one goal. Um, so when I measure bedrooms, I make sure there's 40 square feet of space per child. His job is extremely important, in part because one of the biggest needs of the child welfare system right now is the shortage of families willing to take foster children. Currently, Michigan has 10,500 children in foster care and just under 5,000 foster families. One of the reasons is because while the criteria for being foster parents is pretty simple and clear cut, the job is anything but. We wanna make sure that financially they're, they're good um, uh, to care for the child financially before foster care payments start coming in. Um, we wanna make sure your electric bills are paid up and not gonna be turned off. Um, your heat is on. Um, we really, it's really invasive as far as that's concerned, finance-wise. Um, we get all your bills, W-2s, and we review all that. Make sure all your bills are current. So yeah, it can be pretty invasive. Um, as far as the home's concerned, it's the same thing as, as a relative's home. Um, make sure you just have enough space. You know, there's, there's, no, there's no hazards in the home. Making sure all the medication and things of that nature are locked up. Weapons are all locked up things of that nature. The entire licensing process takes about six to eight months. In his experience, the length and degree of the process tends to weed out people who may have been on the fence about fostering. But Ross isn't just assessing the pragmatic aspects of foster parents. He's assessing interpersonal skills too. Empathy, caring. Um, I judge the person's, um, the people as, are they cooperative? Are they flexible? Um, because a lot of this this field is being flexible and cooperative, um, changing any given day, it, it, things can change and things come up. This is a very the one thing can happen one day and then the next day you're like, holy moly, we're on a whole different whole different avenue now. Um, I think that's the hardest part um, about ass assessing someone. You can you could have really good initiative and think you want this, 
but then you get into the middle of it and you're like, I don't know if this is for me. But there are tons of kids that need that need a home out there, and there's tons of people that are great and could be great at fostering. Because reunification can't always be a realistic goal, Ross has learned to celebrate other successes. It could be anything. It could be the child get the resources that he or she needs as far as therapy, um, early on, um, the right schooling, tutors if needed, and on the other side, birth parents. Um, Drug-free, alcohol-free, um, you know, live a straight, forward life, you know, and care for your child. Um, I, th I think that, uh, me being in this field, uh, I've been in this field for six years now. I would say if it's anything that you thought about before and you go through this process and you've taken a child in your home and you get to the stage of adoption and that you succeed and you get through adoption, um, that is the most amazing thing you could, you could see. Watching a child grow from a baby, just say a baby was placed in a home, and watching that child grow to a say he's in the system for five years, and the foster family adopts that child, oh, that is a sight to see. It's pretty amazing. So if you're ever thinking about being a foster parent, it is, it, it's phenomenal. But there are a lot of hard, hard things you have to do, do, do go through and hurdles that you have to jump. And like Lida, he has a favorite part of his job. Watching the kids, watching the kids go into a safe home, watching families complete their families. Um, I've seen people that adopt, adopted two kids, um, couldn't have children of their own, and close their license and they're happy. They have two children they've had since basically babies and. You know, that, that's what I like most about my job. If you're listening to this because you have been thinking about and discerning if you're capable, you're willing, and called to foster parenting, here are a few parting words of wisdom from the staff at CCSEM. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It is a very, very hard process, and these foster parents are amazing for everything they go through. I think if someone is interested in becoming a foster parent, the first thing they should do is reach out to us in our licensing department and we can give them a lot more information about what's expected. Um, but at the end of the day, if someone really wants to help out, we do make accommodations to help. You know, it, it, it's it's not as scary. It's not as scary as, as what I think people think it is. I think, um, you know, TV and things that you possibly might hear on the news and whatnot, I think it kind of um, scares people. I think the unknown scares people. I think not knowing what type of, of child would, would come into your home. I think not knowing the process, not knowing the system is, is scary to people. And so I would encourage people just to educate themselves. Educate themselves, give us a call. We'll, our, you know, our licensing department, myself, um, we're willing to talk to you about the process and what, it, what it's like. Um, I think people think that if they're a licensed foster family, we are going to throw children at them that they don't want. But as a licensed foster parent, you set your parameters. You set the parameters of how many children you're willing to accept in your home, what uh, type of child, um, what demographics that you would be able to accept. Anyone can be a foster parent. If you are willing to take on a child and you feel that you can meet all of their needs, taking them to the doctor, the dentist, making sure they're enrolled in school, Anyone can do it. 
you're opening your home, you're opening your heart to to these children in need, to these families, not even not even just the children. But again, going back to what I had said earlier, you know, the hope is is that you know you, you hear the the saying, it takes a village. I mean, the hope is that the lives that we touch, whether it's foster families, birth families, um, the the children that we're servicing, the young adults that we're servicing, the the you know whatever we're able to provide is is you know is beneficial to them and that we leave them in a better state than than they were when they came to us you know the services that we're providing just the patience the guidance the the love the nurturing that we are providing these families you know you would hope that that is you know something that they're going to carry on with them and so that we're we're really doing those works of mercy but really fulfilling the the the, the church's you know, calling for, God's calling for what people are, you know, being asked to do. Detroit Stories is a production of Detroit Catholic and the Communications Department of the Archdiocese of Detroit. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Being a mom is the most challenging and rewarding job in the world. At Catholic Charities of Southeast Michigan, they make it a bit easier for moms who are feeling alone, struggling financially, or who need an extra hand to help them establish a secure and happy family. To learn more about the ways you can help moms in need, visit ccsem.org respectlife.